I, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was my first introduction into user experience, right? Like a, a UX or user experience is exactly that. It's like, I could put a microphone out in a storm and then all I get is like, you know, wind distortion and then, you know, the game yeah. dipping every time there's a thunderclap or something, you know, and, and it just sounds completely, you know, just different levels of noise and it's not exciting. It's not interesting at all. Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. Sound plays a more important role in human behavior and our decision-making than you may realize. In this podcast, I'll help you understand the art and science of sound so you can better influence others in business and your life. I'm your host, Jody Krangle. Let's delve a little deeper. Here's the first part of my conversation with Chris Hegstrom. My next guest's journey into UX sound has been pretty rewardingly winding. Say that fast three times. After 10 years of deviation into product sound, he's returned to video game audio. Or was the decade of game audio before that the deviation? Only time will tell. He's been creating and presenting audio communication for brands, experiences, products, intellectual properties, and other forms of media for over 25 years, either way. A music synthesis major at Berklee College of Music, he got his start doing live sound for Blue Man Group. He then transitioned to audio for interactive media during the dot-com bubble and eventually found his way into AAA video games by 2001. For the next 11 years, he designed sound and audio systems for games such as Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Star Wars Episode Three, Burnout Paradise, God of War Three, and Connect Adventures. In 2012, at Microsoft, he found himself on the incubation team for HoloLens and worked on audio experiences and systems that would solve perceptual issues, as well as immerse and entertain users. He then transitioned onto the UX team and worked on the sound palette for the HoloLens OS. In 2015, he left Microsoft to start his own company, Symmetry Audio, delivering product and experience audio for Google, Unity, HBO, and Technicolor, as well as a number of smaller local Seattle clients. Amazon offered him a job as senior UX sound designer in 2017, and there he worked for the Devices and Services Group, crafting sounds for Fire TV, Alexa, and numerous product endeavors across the company. In 2020, he worked exclusively on Amazon Glow, creating the sound palette and overall audio vision for the product that was eventually shelved at the end of 2022. He's currently audio manager at Insomniac Games, overseeing a team of internal and external sound designers on Wolverine. He hopes to inject some of his UX audio knowledge and process into the games industry by helping his team build connections and solve problems with audio. His name is Chris Hegstrom, and I have no doubt this conversation will give us all some hints on how to solve problems with audio. Kind of the point of this podcast. As always, if you have questions for my guest, you're welcome to reach out through the links in the show notes. If you have questions for me, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com where you'll find a lot of ways to get in touch. You can also join regular Clubhouse chats in the Power of Sound house at 2 p.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Plus, subscribing to the newsletter will let you know when the new podcasts are available and what the newest Clubhouse rooms will be about. And if you're getting some value from listening, the best ways to show your support are to share this podcast with a friend and leave an honest review. 
Both those things really help, and I'd love to feature your review on future podcasts. You can leave one either in written or in voice format from the podcast's main page. I would so appreciate that. And now, here's my conversation with Chris Hegstrom. Hey, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to Me this. Me too, Jody. This has uh, been something in the works for a while, uh, so I'm excited to be here. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad that we managed to make it work. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So off of the heels of the International Sound Awards, mm -hmm. actually, which was uh, just announced, they just announced the winners, they didn't did. they? So and thank you for moderating that whole thing. That went a lot more oh, my smoothly pleasure. than it usually does. So appreciate you. I'm glad. <laughs> appreciate you being there. That's really good. It was a lot of fun, actually. And I, I met a lot of people and uh, yeah, really interesting conversations. And I'm sure this will be interesting, Let's too. So. And to start that off, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will. <laughs> to start that off, I wanted to ask if you had an early memory of how sound moved you. Uh, yeah, actually, um, I do have an early memory about how sound moved me. Um, I guess maybe I was about 15 years old. And um, I had a paper route and uh, I saved up enough money to buy a uh, Sony Walkman, but it was a special kind. It was, it not only had the auto reverse and the five band graphic equalizer, um, it had FM, AM and UHF channels for the TV channels from back Ooh, in the day. Fancy. Yeah, really. It's kind of. <laughs> random and analog in that way. So sure. And it was all strategic, basically. Um, I had a bed, I think my bedtime was like 11 o'clock or something. Um, so I would start like the late night movie at 10. Yeah, that's my bedtime yeah, now, uh, by the way. <laughs> ideally, that would be great to have a bedtime at around then. Yeah. yeah. That, that's my <laughs> ideal bedtime, but usually. <laughs> um, yeah. So what I would do is I would watch the first half of like, you know, a movie like Amityville Horror or something that I, you know, maybe should should or shouldn't be watching. But anyway, um, mm -hmm. and then 11 o'clock would come. I would put my headphones in and, uh, you know, in bed with the lights off and everything like that, close my eyes and listen to the rest of the movie. Um, and basically that was the first time that I had the idea of telling stories with sound. Interesting. Yeah. So what did you get from the movie when you were listening to it only? I'm, I'm curious as to what the difference would have been yeah. between just listening and, and the visuals as well. Well, I guess, I mean, you are paying much more attention to the nuances of the sound, of course. And I had a reference from the first hour, so I wasn't, you know, um, completely off track. But at the same time, I would basically let my mind uh, draw the pictures of the visuals um, while I... And there was a, almost a little bit of a delay as well, too, of hearing the sound and sort of processing, oh, that was a teacup on a dining room table, or that was a, you know, um, a door opening from, you know, from outside or something, you know. Um, so it was to me it was really interesting to have to formulate that reality or that sort of you know um by just listening and uh not actually seeing it so it made me think a lot about um sound to tell stories and uh doing a little bit of investigation i also found some found out that 
the movies that we see or the TV that we see or, or media that we uh, consume is basically recreated. Um, there's not like, I used to think there was just, you know, oh, there's just a microphone there and it's just recording yeah. the stuff that's happening all around them. And it just sounds that good. And no, that's certainly not the case. Everything's recreated. And I think that just really kind of cracked open this fascination with me of just like, wow. So someone is taking that all, you know, maybe use a what they call a production track, which is, you know, what they actually record on site. And they're using that as reference to kind of recreate things in order to maybe build emotion or, um, you know, bring the user on a, on a journey, um, whether it's kind of, you know, an emotional state or the, you know, the hero's journey or the progression of what you're watching. Um, I just, I found that to be really fascinating. And that's just sort of when I, I fell in love with the idea of, of using sound to tell stories. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it fascinated me too, actually. And that's kind of part of why I started this podcast as well, to sort of delve into the power of sound in general. But film, yeah. my goodness, I mean, the power that sound lends to film yeah. is amazing. And and it's interesting, as you say, to realize that it is a recreation. Yeah. Because when you're just having a microphone out there, if you try to recreate the sound of a storm, for instance, and you just like have a microphone outside, it doesn't sound the way we think it should no. sound. <laughs> and that's exactly it. So this this it, it, perfect segue, really, that really, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was my first introduction into user experience, right? Like a, a UX or user experience is exactly that. It's like, I could put a microphone out in a storm and then all I get is like, you know, wind distortion and then, you know, the game yeah. dipping every time there's a thunderclap or something, you know, and, and it just sounds completely, you know, just different levels of noise and it's not exciting. It's not interesting at all. Um, but what is the experience of that? Maybe from a filmic point of view, you want to create tension, you want to like, you know, get people on edge. So, you know, maybe there's a, a rhythm to how you present the, you know, the thunder and then you time it with like the, you know, the, the jump scare or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, it it's exactly the case is, you know, I, I know a lot of really good location recordists and... Um, I'm happy that I know them because, you know, that particular uh, skill set is, you know, is beyond me as far as, uh, you know, the ability to capture something, to know, to put yourself in the position to be able to capture something that is actually interesting. Because <laughs> it would be really specific, yeah, yeah that kind of skill set. I've heard stories <laughs> about you know people that just kind of wait in environments for like all the people to go away, and then they have this moment of like, all right, I can get like twenty seconds right now, and then just like it's it's like action, and people you know kind of run around and get the recordings they need because they see the you know the the crowds dispersing or whatever you know. Um, because like you said, you don't, everything is relative to the environment. Uh, you get the reflections off the buildings and any of that might deter from the story you're trying to tell. So, yeah. Yeah. So true. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. It's just really, 
interesting to understand all the processes that go yeah. behind all of the things that make movie magic, right? And for voiceover, <laughs> right? But, On your point of view, to, to yeah. actually know about the ADR, the, the automatic dialogue replacement, you know, that not even the the speech that is happening on the scene is necessarily mm-hmm. what you're hearing. You know, you're you're hearing an actor go back into the studio and track themselves um, and re-record yep. that, uh, you know, in a nice controlled environment. You know, it's it's fascinating. And sometimes it's not even the actor that originally recorded right. it. <laughs> exactly. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot that goes sure. into this this movie magic thing. Yeah. <laughs> But how did you get into UX sound and and then video game yeah, audio? My yeah, goodness, yeah. that's kind of like a, a pretty big progression. Yeah, a little. Uh, there's a little bit uh, on the other side of that, I guess. Um, so I um, I went to Berkeley College of Music uh, and majored in music synthesis, which is now electronic music production or EPD or yeah. Electronic production design. That's right. Um, so at the time, it was music synthesis, which was essentially you know how sounds are created and you know properties of acoustics and just kind of understanding you know um, just the basis and the foundation of sound and um, integrating that into electronics and synthesis and um, you know, really kind of heady stuff, but fascinating nonetheless. Um, I managed to fall into um, an internship um, in 95 for this little uh, off-Broadway, lesser-known production that was only in New York. It was called Blue Man Group. Um, So I did... um, Oh, just a little. Well, at the time, nobody, you know, there's a few people that knew about it in New York, right? You know, but it wasn't like you know in Vegas and Toronto and all the, you know, (laughs) all the places it has. uh, It has. uh, You were the OG. The second, second, second run or whatever. Yeah. Uh, So, um, I managed to just kind of fall into live sound, and as the intern, you know, you're. uh, You know, laying cables in the catwalks, and you know, running off and getting coffee. Um, but throughout the load-in process of actually kind of building an environment, uh, out of a, an empty theater, and that's including, you know, the speaker array, the amplifiers in the back room, uh, signal chain, mixing console in the, you know, in the mix position, um, you know, uh, in-ear monitors for the band, uh, you know, talk back between me and stage manager, all that stuff was really um, it actually takes a lot to make that, <laughs> obviously, but um, it was a whole nother kind of appreciation for the uh, the complexities of this new uh, this new to me this new medium. Um, and on opening day, which was October in '95, um, I was offered the second sound engineer position because the first sound engineer wanted to be able to take a day off and nobody else knew the show. <laughs> and I just happened to have been there, you know, learning it um, through osmosis, I guess. Um, so I was at Blue Man Group for about three years. Um, and I did shows in Boston, New York, Chicago. Um, it was a lot of fun and a lot of learning. Uh, but the interesting thing about that, again, going back to user experience is Every person that shows up there pays a bunch of money and they don't 
they don't have the understanding or knowledge that it might be the 400th time that you've seen or heard this show. To them, it's the first time. So being able to kind of package that and present it in this, you know, um, this really exciting way, despite how like, you know, um, second nature it might be at that point uh, or um, yeah. So, so it was very interesting to me to, think about the experience of every person who is in the theater and making sure that all of the sound that comes through the mixing console and goes out the speakers um, is, you know, delightful and, uh, you know, something that really adds to their experience for that 70 minutes or 90 minutes that they're there in the show. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Quick question. Do you know anyone else who could benefit from hearing more about how powerful sound can be? If so, would you mind sharing this podcast with them? It would mean so much to me. Now, I'll stop interrupting and let you get back to the show. So how does that relate then to UX experience, like UX design, I guess, in video games? Yeah, Yeah. I guess. um, So... When you think about user experience, you think about friction and you think about maybe um, maybe eliminating or minimizing the amount of friction that someone experiences on their way to what it is that you have curated, you being the director or the, you know, the designer or something like that. Um, so sound UX or sound user experience is essentially the way to get them into that emotion as seamlessly and as with as little interruption as possible. Um, so I guess the difference between something like we were talking about with film and something like um, live sound is that I in live sound, I know I've done my job if nobody knows that I'm there. Um, if nobody knows that there is an audio person, <laughs> if everybody just thinks that yeah. it's magically coming out of the band and out of the performers and into their ears, um, then I've done a, a good job. So that's that's reducing the friction. <laughs> when things go wrong and people turn around and look at who's that, you know, who's that sound engineer that keeps screwing up? Um, then that's not that's, <laughs> that's not a good. Problem. Yes, that is introducing <laughs> friction, <laughs> not reducing it. Um, so, and again, for media like video games or film, video games especially, is it's interesting because I know we, we've got off track a little bit, but with video games, you're almost creating friction for the user, right? Because it's this experience and this pastime, but it has to do with, you know, coming up against patterns, recognizing patterns and then overcoming them and then increasing difficulty and getting satisfaction out of that. So it's almost like on the fundamental level, interactive media and video games is almost this kind of gradual um, kind of payoff to uh, experiencing and overcoming friction, right? If that makes sense. It's very... <laughs> it does. Yeah. Of course. You need conflict. Otherwise, the game is not exactly. interesting, yeah, really. <laughs> exactly. You need conflict and you need somebody, you need reason for people to want to c- continue to come back. So it can't be too hard that they just, you know, break the controller and run away. Uh, it can't be too easy. No one wants that. <laughs> Some games are, you know, that's. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's a point of pride for some folks. Um, and in other games, it can't be too easy that people just kind of solve the patterns, recognize the patterns, and then, you know, just kind of, you know, give up because it's too easy. Um, it has to be that perfect balance or that, you know, that ideal balance between um, hard enough and not too hard. Yeah. And then there's the user community that gives away the answers often. <laughs> so yeah, that's a yeah, whole other yeah. thing. <laughs> so long story short, too late. From uh, Blue Man Group, I got into um, a company uh, during the whole dot-com boom in downtown Boston um, that was uh, basically providing a digital platform um, for a, like a children's ISP. So we had, um, it was called Junior Net, and we had um, content providers like uh, Ranger Rick, uh, Weekly Reader, Highlights, uh, Sports Illustrator for Kids, um, Bear in the Big Blue House. I believe I remember all that. Um, so that gave me the understanding of the different sort of feelings and different uh, asks that you're going to get from different content providers. Obviously, something from uh, like either uh, Zillions, which is uh, geared towards tweens, or Sports Illustrator for kids is going to be a little bit edgier sounding than something for highlights or, you know, um, something for um, for younger kids. So knowing your audience and knowing uh, the approvers of those styles uh, helped me figure out the idea of um, determining your kind of directive, uh, you know, before you actually start designing anything. And as many dot-coms, this uh, kind of imploded around the, the, uh, the 2000 era, and um, of course it did. <laughs> and I took a pretty huge leap of faith at that point. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the, the, the quick version of this because, you know, back and forth of applying for places. And um, basically, I started at a video game place, a, a video game developer um, in the Bay Area um, in the year 2001. And that was my first real... Uh, experience at a, at a games company, uh, working with games teams and um, doing audio for, you know, it was an Xbox launch title. So it was considered AAA, which is, you know, the video game um, terminology for kind of blockbuster, um, high profile uh, projects. And you were doing just sound in general? It wasn't you. That's correct. I was just doing sound um, okay. and sound meaning mm -hmm. like, you know, the, uh, you know, weapons or the vehicles or the interactions of, you know, the surface types or, um, you know, um, any anything that is uh, needed uh, for the video games at the time. And this was... And then we get back to the whole film? Yeah, thing, then you get right? back to the... Because you're recreating yes, environments, yes and right? Yes no, right? You get back to the film thing because <laughs> of the time, um, especially working on early consoles, um, you had to be very creative with how you fit things into a smaller uh, delivery package. Um, films sort of had this, you know, um, they had this this allure to them from the video game people of like, oh my God, they can put in anything and all the detail and nuance that they want. They have room for it all. And so for many, many of the game developer conferences, especially the audio tracks during the, the, the early <laughs> 2000s, it was all about, 
we need more memory. We need, we know, we we need more uh, access to, you know, the um, the runtime processing. We need more, um, you know, more capability, more horsepower, essentially. Um, so, I worked in video games for about, I guess, I want to like over a decade at that point. Uh, different developers, um, different uh, publishers. Um, I worked at. Uh, LucasArts, I worked at Electronic Arts, I worked at um, Criterion Games in the UK, and then Sony Santa Monica, and eventually um, went up to Seattle and worked at Microsoft on the Kinect uh, for the Xbox 360 and the Kinect launch title. So during that time, I got to work on, you know, um, licensed IP, original IP, um, lots of different uh, genres between like what they call hack and slash of like fantasy role-playing sort of Dungeons and Dragons, Lord of the Rings to Star Wars, to James Bond, uh, to racing games. Um, it's quite the range is, there. <laughs> you know, it, it was a lot. I consider myself lucky to have had the exposure of all those different types of teams and all those different types of games. But along the way, technology gets better, expectations get higher um, and by about 2012, uh, after doing, uh, connect star Wars was the last video game project that I had worked on before the entire team on connect got, um, transitioned, uh, over to the HoloLens, uh, which is the mixed reality headset that Microsoft did. So from there you had basically a games team you know, kind of figuring out how to work within this new space. And it was very exciting and very different. And through that, I transitioned from games into, because I worked on some experiences for HoloLens. Then I, I transitioned into the uh, product el element of that, um, of that platform. So when I say product, I mean, basically the interaction sounds uh, between the user and um, the content. So you are the bridge between those two. What was the big difference between those two? Because there must have been a huge one. I yeah. mean, <laughs> between games and, and user experience on just programs. Right. Well, <laughs> luckily for me, I was a bit of a, a masochist uh, when it comes to the type of sound design that I like to do. On okay. a lot of the projects, the video game projects, I would be the one who would volunteer to do UI sound, UI being user interface sound. So when I use the acronyms, sure. I will not use them interchangeably because they are not the same thing. Um, so the user interface sounds are essentially the sounds that every other sound designer wants to stay away from because of their relative subjectivity, right? So audio is highly subjective. Uh, user interface um, is highly subjective. Audio for user interface <laughs> is the most subjective of the most subjective. Everyone will just tell you, I hate it and I don't know why. So that's a. Yeah. So, why? I'm curious why it's so subjective. Like, is there a particular reason why it turns yeah, out to be I, that I way? I think <laughs> it's because everybody can't help but have something in their mind about what it's supposed to either sound or feel or act like, right? So when I see a, um, 
like a, a selection wheel, for instance, in, in a video game or something like that, I can hear in my head sort of what I would assume that would be. Is it going to be like a ratchety mechanical sound? Is it going to be sort of this like, you know, kind of tonal soft sound? Everyone has a different kind of image, uh, audio image of what that uh, experience will sound like. I always think of it like the prices, right? right? There you go. There's, there's, there's <laughs> the big there's wheel. door number three. Jody. I know. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone has something different of what they would expect. So when I design something for it immediately, that deviates from the expectation of what somebody has in their head. Um, so, <laughs> you know, designing the sound of those, um, of those instances is maybe like a quarter of the battle, right? The first part is to get buy-in and the, the middle part is designing the sound. And then the last part is kind of pulling people into your, <laughs> your reasoning behind doing this. And, uh, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but that is generally why a lot of, um, a lot of sound designers that either come from a linear experience or they come from um, a very kind of worldly, realistic experience want to tend, you know, want to keep away from that level of subjectivity um, just because it's, you know, it's, it really opens everything up to interpretation. And then if you don't have a really strong case in either way, you're just sort of at the whim of the, uh, the listener at that point. Yeah. Are you looking for ways to improve your company's or podcast's impact? You'd be surprised how powerful the use of an intentional audio branding strategy can be. Want to know more? I have a free downloadable PDF that gives you my five tips for implementing an intentional audio strategy at voiceoversandvocals.com slash audio dash branding dash strategy. That location does ask to put you on a mailing list just to send you updates on when the new podcasts come out. But if you really don't want to give your email out, I understand. Just contact me directly. My email is all over my website, and I'll make sure you get that PDF without needing to sign up anywhere. If you do sign up, though, you also get access to a resources section called The Studio, where I have videos, white papers and PDFs, discounts from my guests, and snippets of audio from my guests that no one else gets to hear. So maybe it's worth your while. Totally up to you. And of course, if you're looking for voiceovers, you can get in touch with me about that too. Now, back to the podcast. Interesting point. So yeah. because of my... You What's know, the... Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to... I was just going to ask you what the biggest misconception about that experience sound design is, because there's got to be a lot. If it's pretty subjective, how do you reconcile that with giving the user a good experience? Yeah, that's a great question. Um so a lot of it is kind of research and kind of pulling together the design language, you know? And when I say design language, I mean, like, I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm talking about like Dieter Rams, like Johnny Ives, like capital D design, right? Um, when you go, when you talk to UX designers at like Google or Meta or um, Amazon or something like that, you will... Um, you'll get this sense of a lot of work going into the preparation for designing an experience. And um, that I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. There was a little bit, when we talk about friction, there was a little bit of friction between um, 
when I was at Microsoft, for instance, and this is this happens everywhere, so it's not specifically at Microsoft. Um, there was a games audio team, and there was a uh, you know a, a couple of folks that did kind of uh, product operating system OS you know uh, OS sounds, and there was a bit of um, misunderstanding uh, between the two. <laughs> between the two factions of, um, I remember, uh, a particular, uh, audio director was saying like, I can't believe that so-and-so took a year to make 12 sounds, you know, that is unbelievable that like, you know, that, you know, it would essentially like one sound a month, like it just, it seems completely bizarre. You know, we have, we ship entire products, Within that time, we we ship entire games with multiple worlds and all of these interactions, and so and so can just you know hang out and do twelve sounds in a year. And the response to that from the UX design, the UX sound designer was, um, "I'll call you when I need an explosion sound." <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it, it was a little you know like okay. a little bit of a barb back and forth and i mean uh -huh. i guess the misconception was that you have to get buy-in right um from all of the stakeholders before you even go before you even embark onto a direction right so you have to think kind of holistically and you know not to get you know um touchy-feely about it but sort of even like you know What's the motivation? What are we trying to get the, the user to experience? What is this, you know, like, um, I guess Windows 10 was, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was, it was the, um, the entire design language was considered like unapologetically digital. Um, so the sounds would not really fly if they were, you know, kind of recordings of a coconut being you know, bonked or something like that. It it had to be a digital sound. It had to be something that uh, you know uh, matched with the um, the color palette. Um, it had to be something that matched with the the flow of the interactions. And um, so, kind of working on that would take like the first eleven months, <laughs> right? Of those twelve months, right? Is basically you're building a deck and you are talking about all of the research that's gone in and all of the um, collaboration uh, that has been done with all of the other design teams and sort of looking at what is the audio representation of this particular color palette that the artists and animators are doing? What is the design, what is the audio language of the, the interaction flow of these tiles and how, you know, transitioning from this tile to that tile should sound like this. It should be soft or it should be warm or it should be, I don't know. Um, so you're, you're, as a UX sound designer, you're essentially building your uh, reference guide first, right? You know, um, and... It, th there's a similarity to that in games, in game audio. It's what we used to call the audio Bible. I guess we don't call that in, that anymore. Um, but there's something similar to it because of that subjectivity. That there's a there's a there's a chasm of subjectivity that will always occur with sounds 
in their nature, it's something somebody hears in their head before they hear the actual, before they hear what you have done. So this guide or this sort of, you know, rationale or reasoning behind it is a way to sort of create guardrails around the work that you're going to embark on as a user experience designer. One of the analogies that I use, and I, I use a lot of analogies, um, if game audio is like writing a novel, um, UX sound is like calligraphy, right? It's the the it's something that stands on its own and really has to communicate everything that it needs to communicate in the most pure form um, without any sort of um, misinterpretation. And game audio on the other side would be this very complex interrelated, you know, system of systems that kind of comes together to create this experience. The emotional end game might be the same, um, of what you're trying to get the user to experience, but the, the methodology of it is, um, is much different. Yeah. And it occurs to me also that UX would be a lot more difficult because the people experiencing it are experiencing it many times over. Yeah. I mean, the, the point is that you, you they're going to be using it constantly. So they're going to hear this sound, whatever yeah. it is, many, many times, and, and they shouldn't be annoyed by yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> and that's where that that's where the this this subtlety comes in, and that's where the, the kind of nuance of your um your motivation and what you're trying to convey. And you're basically, it's almost this subtractive, you're, you're trying to take everything away except for that. <laughs> um, you don't, it's interesting because sure. it, when you're dealing with teams, especially in UX sound, um, in, in these corporate environments, and you know, a lot of them are not used to working with sound people, but they're excited to, and they go, I want it to sound really big and really celebratory. And, and you have to say, okay, I hear what you're saying, and I appreciate your enthusiasm for that and the difference between form and function in that level of um, design, uh, it, you, have to, you have to tread very, very carefully um, because, as you said, <laughs> working, uh, yeah, as, as you said, it's something you hear so often and it's something that needs to, the function of it supersedes the form nine times out of 10, um, because you just want that person to understand um, what they're trying to accomplish and without with the least amount of interruption into their lives. Um, a lot of people that work sure. in um, mobile notifications say that the audio for mobile no notifications, uh, either on apps or something, say that their main objective is to not get the user to turn the sound off. And that's harder than it seems because... Um, yeah. We're kind of inundated with a lot of audio cues. Um, not not many of them are cohesive and not many of them are very considerate of one another, right? Uh, you've got companies that think that there are brand opportunities to kind of, you know, really uh, announce themselves to users. And as we know from the UX audio perspective is that that can certainly backfire. Um, <laughs> you don't want... You, you don't want to take up more space in the user's head than 
um, than they want you to. <laughs> this has been part one of our interview. I hope you'll tune in next week for part two. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, why not tell a friend about this podcast? It's available in all the usual locations. Until next time, 